Hello everyone and welcome to the Macbeth monologues. In this monologue we'll be investigating how Shakespeare presents women in his most notorious tragedy. Now let me tell you, it's not easy being a woman in literature. It's definitely worth noting that women have often been portrayed in literature as temptresses, as manipulative or foolish beings that are responsible for the moral and physical downfall of men. And it's no different in Macbeth in some ways. We certainly do have a deadly doom merchant in the form of the scheming femme fatale Lady Macbeth, but this play is so much more than just Lady M. Shakespeare creates far fewer women than men in Macbeth, but their influence is mighty, such as the witches and their malevolent powers, the saintly and gentle wife of King Duncan, and the spirited yet slain Lady Macduff, whose death seismically spurs Macduff on to kill Macbeth. Even Lady M's lady-in-waiting and those on the lower rungs of society, such as the sailor's wife, reveal much. Once we allow ourselves to think beyond the usual, Lady Macbeth is a villain and the only important woman in the play, kind of way. Now on the whole, these are women of extremes. No wilting wallflowers in sight, these women are seriously sassy. And what's more, they tend to be either seriously malevolent or seriously benevolent. My belief is simple. Despite the number of men in Shakespeare's most famous tragedy, women control this play. And let's investigate further. Most notorious of all, we have the witches, the weird sisters. Now this little triumvirate of evil is obviously on this seriously dreadful scale and I'll deal with these in another separate podcast because these bad girls need time to themselves. And besides, as otherworldly creatures, we're not really sure what gender they are anyway. And then there's Hecate, Queen Bee of the Witches and by far the most powerful. It could be argued that she's the mother superior of malevolence in our play. I'll also discuss her when we consider the witches in their separate podcast. On the other end of the female spectrum of power, we also hear about the poor old sailor's wife, whose husband is set to face a terrifying storm and ongoing torment through sleep deprivation. And this is vengeance because the poor lump-fed Ronion courageously refuses to share her chestnuts with witch number one. And in fact, despite being an ordinary little woman, she is exceptionally brave to deny the witches. And their response is to call her fat and to call her ugly and to get their own back like the playground children, but far more menacing. And it's interesting that the witches like to manipulate the men in our play. They don't kill the wife, but her husband pays the chilling chestnut price. So what about Lady Macduff? This woman is seriously feisty, she's seriously loyal and she's seriously loving, but she can also be seriously tricky to work out. We first meet her for the first time in Act 4, Scene 2, immediately after the famous cauldron scene where we've seen the witches at their most depraved, casually dropping body parts of dead babies, people from foreign lands and all manner of deadly plants and animals into their cauldron of hell broth. And so, it's a genius contrast when Shakespeare presents the feisty but loving Lady Macduff to us. She is seemingly furious with her husband Macduff for leaving Scotland. She can only consider him a traitor for running away, but Ross, her cousin, tries to convince her otherwise. 
But she then goes on to attempt to convince her young son that Macduff is a traitor and he's dead, but he won't believe any of that. And we witness a loving scene between the pair as the young son is too wise for his mother. Shakespeare allows Lady Macduff to use gentle bird imagery, asking, where should I fly? And comparing herself to a poor wren and calling a little son a poor bird. Now, despite this delicate imagery, this woman is fierce, claiming she would fight against the owl, obviously a dangerous predator, to protect her family. And she won't quietly accept her womanly defence of having done no harm. But we know, though, that her bravery can't overpower Macbeth's assassins and she, along with her entire household, is slaughtered. We also know that she and her family is entirely innocent and doesn't deserve this death, so it's one of the most appalling episodes in the play, especially as we witness the terrible murder of a child. Interestingly, we never witness the on-stage death of any women in the play, like Lady Macbeth. Lady Macduff's demise is off stage. Perhaps Shakespeare considered this step just a step too far for his audience. Now, once Macduff hears of his family's murder, he simply can't believe it. He explodes with, oh, hell kite, and then asks questions over and over again to make sense of it. My children, too. My wife killed, too. All my pretty chickens and my dam. Macduff's desperate and agonising grief of his wife is unlike Macbeth's reflective mourning of Lady Macbeth when, she, when he simply says she should have died hereafter. If poor Macduff needed any more reason to stop Macbeth, avenging his wife's death becomes his prime motivating factor now. Now we tend to think that Lady Macbeth doesn't know about what happened at Fife Castle, the home of the Macduffs, and yet in Lady Macbeth's final famous sleepwalking scene, she eerily mumbles that the thing of Fife had a wife, where is she now? And the nursery rhyme and rhythm style of it is chilling. So she obviously did get to find out at some point. And it's ironic as well that she should reflect on what happened to the innocent Lady Macduff shortly before her own death. Let's spend a minute considering Duncan's wife, Malcolm's mother, of course. Now, she only gets one tiny mention. She doesn't even get a name. Macduff helpfully reminds Malcolm that his mother was more often on her knees than on her feet, as she was always kneeling in prayer. She is the epitome of the Jacobean ideal of a perfect wife and a saintly queen, a consort whose only reason for speech is to pray. She acts out her role as wife and queen perfectly and, by the way, we're supposed to imagine she'd be okay with her anonymity. In essence, Shakespeare refers to Duncan's queen in order to magnify the contrast between her and the dastardly, ruling, fiend-like queen of Scotland, Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth's gentlewoman barely gets a look in, but it's worth taking some time to think about her. She is seriously loyal. In Act 5, she stayed awake with the Doctor for two nights, hoping that her Doctor will see Lady M sleepwalking in order to work out how to cure her. It's only on the third night that Lady M sleepwalks. So, despite the fact that others are leaving the Macbeth stronghold, this woman is both persistent, supportive and loyal. In fact, even when the Doctor asks what Lady M has been saying in her sleep, the gentlewoman protectively replies and will not report after her. He then insists that she spill the beans about what she's heard, but our spirited gentlewoman says she won't tell him nor anyone. It seems a noble thing to do, but notably she's worried that she doesn't have any witness to confirm what she's telling the doctor. 
Shakespeare's reminding the audience that nobody feels safe. And the gentlewoman is responsible for telling us about the ritual of washing her hands that goes on for a quarter of an hour each time and how she needs to have the light by her continually. We know that this sleepwalking is not a one-off. It's an ongoing, sombre, macabre display of her mistress's guilt. In fact, this intuitive woman states clearly that she would not want such a heart in her body as it would be too painful and probably sinful. And so we finally come to her, one of Shakespeare's finest fan fatales, Lady Macbeth. Almost entirely menacing and malevolent, she is one of the most disturbing female characters ever created. However, Whatever we do, avoid the obvious cliché Lady M at your peril. Leave that to other people. So, where to begin with Lady M? Well, Shakespeare keeps us waiting and we don't meet her until Act 1, Scene 5, when it seems she's affectionately reading out a letter from her victorious warrior husband, having just defeated those pesky Norwegians. We're not unreasonably expecting a tender reunion of the Macbeths, but we're astounded to find Lady M's immediate response in her soliloquy is a powerful declaration that Macbeth will become king, and her horrifying summons on the powers of darkness to unsex her here and fill her with direst cruelty is terrifying. We're certainly not expecting this. There's no degeneration in Lady M. From the moment we meet her, she is wickedness distilled. And even when Macca comes home, she ignores his loving greeting of my dearest love and instead addresses him as king before launching into a tirade about how he needs to look like the innocent flower but be the serpent under it and deceive the king who gave him the title of the Thane of Cordor for his loyalty in the first place. Well, considering that Beth is a master strategist in battle, it's remarkable that Lady M feels she can direct and manipulate him this way. She is absolutely everything that a Jacobean woman should not be. And this is further reflected when she recalls breastfeeding a child, but would have happily dashed the brains out if she needed to. She is shockingly brutal and calculating, and far from the fair, or no, fair and noble hostess whom the naive and doomed Duncan honours with a whopping diamond. Her plan to frame the guards excites her, and the alcohol she's used to overpower them has given her fire. And yet, when it comes to it, Shakespeare allows us to glimpse some of her vulnerabilities as she'd have killed Duncan had he not resembled her father. And she also jumps nervously at the hour, declaring heart peace in her unease. Astonishingly, though, she instantly turns on her husband and instructs Macbeth not to think about Duncan's murder quite so much as it will ironically make us mad. And her order to wash this filthy witness from his hands is absolutely savage. Her callous suggestion that a little water clears us of this deed is ultimately preposterous when we consider the agonies of her pre-suicidal sleepwalking when all the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand and Shakespeare's imagery of cleansing reflects a disastrous mantle of degeneration. Ever the actress, Lady M composes herself enough to be greeted as a gentle lady by Macduff after his discovery of Duncan's murder, and a decision to feign is a quick-witted reaction to prevent Macbeth going too far in explaining why he killed the guards. However, we then see Lady M's anxiety when she acknowledges that naught's had or spent where our desire is got without content. Despite everything, she is not a woman at peace. 
But interestingly, she doesn't share her worries with Macbeth. Instead, as usual, she prefers to criticise him about keeping alone with sorriest fancies, telling him to sleek over his rugged looks before the coronation banquet that night. Now, Lady M has no idea why Banquo is not at the feast, being innocent of the knowledge of his murder. To her, the banquet perhaps becomes one of the greatest tests, reminding a distracted Macbeth to give the cheer. And since Macbeth is busy instructing Banquo's ghost to never shake his gory locks at him, it's Lady M who has to regain control, diplomatically asking the lords to sit, worthy friends, while simultaneously attacking her husband again for bringing shame itself on proceedings. Now she does this not once, but twice, before admitting defeat, covering for Macbeth, telling the assembled thanes that he grows worse and worse and that they should leave instantly and not upon the order of their going. It's desperately tense and exhausting now as she finally, more calmly this time, reminds him that he lacks the season of all nature's sleep, in an ironic foreshadowing of her own demise. And when her final scene comes in Act 5, Scene 1, poor Lady M is spent. The rigours of a prolonged period of increasing guilt, deception, disguise and covering up has taken its toll. Caught between a half-life and death, Lady M's final acts are to regurgitate all the miseries associated with the vast catalogue of deaths at the hands of her and husband as she sleepwalks, feverishly washing her hands and murmuring the secrets of her infected mind in front of a doctor and gentlewoman. More in need of the divine than a physician, Macbeth pathetically asks why he can't minister to a mind disease desperately wanting to cure the troubles of her brain. And in an odd and almost inexplicable way, we begin to feel sympathy for Lady Anne at this point. And we sense something dreadful may have happened when Satan alerts us to the cry of women. And when he then announces the startling news that the Queen, my lord, is dead, we are strangely moved. Despite her many flaws, we don't really want to add Lady Macbeth's name to the existing and unnecessarily long list of deaths. It's not unusual for Shakespeare to dispatch his female roles in this way, and when we learn later that by self and violent hands she took a life, we can't help but feel a sense of regret at the loss of another life. Even Macbeth doesn't have time to mourn his dearest partner greatness properly, instead lamenting that she should have died hereafter, and that her life has been like a brief candle which has finally been snuffed out. And yet, in Malcolm's final speech of the play, Shakespeare leaves us with a lasting negative legacy of Lady Macbeth, as the newly declared king finally, and probably fittingly, rejoices, renouncing the tormented and tormenting fiend-like queen of Scotland. <laughs>